What comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, the good life? What is the good life? I, I had a theory that if we asked 15 different people, what's the good life? We'd probably get 17 different answers. So I looked it up this week in the dictionary. And Merriam-Webster actually defines the good life as the kind of life people are able to have when they have a lot of money. They, they, they don't hide it at all. Money equals happiness, equals the good life, according to Merriam-Webster. We hear lines in music like, I go for mine, I gots to shine. That's the good life, to, to do whatever it takes to get what I want, what I need, to be comfortable, to, to be happy, to be shining, to be lifted up before other people. A few summers ago, I spent some time in Italy, and one of the predominant cultural themes in Italy is la dolce vita. The sweet life, the sweet life. It's that laid back Italian lifestyle where nothing is rushed. We take time to enjoy the finer things in life. We go to work when we feel like it. We're just living the sweet life. We're just living the sweet life. Well, the Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus's explanation of the good life, or or to use his words, the blessed life. And Jesus's definition of the good life might surprise you because it's not about feeling confident in yourself or making yourself comfortable or always being liked and respected. Quite the opposite. Jesus' definition of the good life is actually found in seeing how small you are. Jesus' definition of the good life centers not on making yourself comfortable, but on denying yourself to serve others. Jesus' definition of the good life isn't centered on being liked and respected, but, but cultivating peace, no matter the personal cost. It's about denying yourself to find true life in him. And so today we're going to look at the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' first words to his disciples in this famous speech. And if I were to summarize this section of the Sermon on the Mount in just a couple words, it would be this. The true disciple trusts and follows Christ. And that's really a, a good window into the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. The Sermon on the Mount, if I was to give it a title, I would title it The True People of the True King. The Sermon on the Mount is The True People of the True King. In other words, if you want to know what a follower of Jesus' life is really supposed to look like, read the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to know what the follower of Jesus' life is really supposed to look like, read the Sermon on the Mount. The true people of the true king. Because Jesus himself is the true king. This is one of the most predominant themes in Matthew's gospel. So the the New Testament opens up with four biographies of Jesus, four gospels, and the first of them is Matthew. And one of the main arguments that Matthew's trying to get across is that Jesus Christ is the true king. If you flip just a few pages over in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, you'll see that the gospel actually begins with a genealogy of Jesus, a description of Jesus' family tree. And one of the things that that genealogy shows us is that Jesus Christ is the son of David. David was the greatest king in the history of Israel, and God made a promise that a descendant of David would sit on a throne, not just ruling over Israel, but ruling over all nations forever. And Jesus, in Matthew's gospel, says, I'm that son of David. I'm that great king. 
Matthew's gospel continues in, in the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 to tell the, the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth, which is centered on this conflict between Jesus and King Herod, where Herod hears about this Jewish king who was born in Bethlehem, and Herod does whatever he can to stop it. And of course he can't because Herod's not the true king. Jesus is the true king. We, we read earlier from Matthew chapter 4. Right before Jesus began his public ministry, he spent 40 days fasting in the desert and he was tempted by Satan. And in Matthew's gospel, unique from the other gospel accounts, Matthew's gospel, that temptation narrative, that conflict between Satan and Jesus, climaxes with Satan bringing Jesus to this high mountain and showing him all the kingdoms of the world and saying, these could be yours if you just fall down and worship me. And Jesus, the true king, says no. Because he recognizes that he will not become king by seizing a throne. He will become king by laying down his life on the cross. And Matthew's gospel ends in chapter 28 with the true king sending out his followers to make disciples of all nations. Because that's how far his kingdom extends. It extends to Afghanistan. It extends to the United States. It extends to Israel. It extends to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus Christ is the true king. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he describes what it means, what it looks like to be a part of his kingdom. The true people of the true king. And what Jesus is after here is not just mere external affiliation, but he's looking after the people who are truly his. The people who will lay down everything to follow after him. And in fact, the Sermon on the Mount ends with a, with a stunning explanation to show that not everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus is actually a follower of Jesus. We'll get into all of that over the next few months. And even the context of the Sermon on the Mount in verses 1 and 2, notice where he starts there. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. So the crowds are down following Jesus. Everything's going great. And Jesus leaves the crowds. He's giving his most important speech, one of the most famous speeches in the history of the world. He sees the crowds and he leaves them because this isn't for the crowds. This isn't for everyone. What happens on the mountain? When he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, and then he, he goes on to give the Sermon on the Mount. So who is the Sermon on the Mount for? It's for the disciples of Christ. When Jesus was on the earth, he had 12 disciples that he kept very close to him. And the rest of the New Testament makes clear that every follower of Jesus is a disciple. Disciple is not a, a, an office that once existed and is over now. Disciple is not like the top tier of Christianity, like maybe you're kind of like a baby Christian and you can become a disciple later on. No, every follower of Jesus is a disciple. So if you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, then you are a disciple, you're a student, you're a learner, you're a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is going to describe what the life of the disciple looks like, the true people of the true king. If you want to know what a follower of Jesus' life is really supposed to look like, read the Sermon on the Mount. And this is such a timely and important message when so many people today reject the message of Christianity because they don't like the appearance and the life of Jesus' followers. One of the most common objections to Christianity is, well, all Christians are just hypocrites. I don't want anything to do with that. 
Well, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount lays out what his people are really supposed to look like. And it's a stunning picture of a beautiful life that he's inviting us all to. So let's silence those people that say all Christians are hypocrites. Let's live the Sermon on the Mount. And if that's you today, if you're saying, well, I can't believe in any of this, all Christians are hypocrites, well, just listen to Jesus' description of what his followers are really supposed to be like and say, is that the kind of thing that you're opposed to? The Sermon on the Mount begins with with nine beatitudes, nine descriptions of the good life, where Jesus said, blessed are the, and he says it nine times. I, I believe that these nine Beatitudes are grouped into three sets of three, where Jesus kind of has, has three different themes that he's addressing through these nine Beatitudes. And, and it's important to note here that these aren't conditional statements, where, where, you know, the first one is like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus isn't saying that if you're poor in spirit, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven, put this in, get this out. No, it's more organic than that. It's not so mechanic. Jesus is describing a view of the world and a general lifestyle which leads to blessing, which leads to life. And so let's dive into Jesus' explanation of the good life together in the Sermon on the Mount. This is where he begins his teaching of his disciples. The first set of three Beatitudes shows that true disciples see themselves humbly. True disciples see themselves humbly. True disciples don't believe that they can find true life or meaning or purpose in themselves, but instead they correctly believe that they're so broken and messed up that there's no hope for them apart from Christ alone. And so the world says the good life is being confident in yourself. Christ says the good life begins by knowing how messed up you really are. So where does he begin? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, doesn't that just sound incredibly backwards? Usually when we say words like blessed or blessed, we're talking about someone who has an abundance. And Jesus says, no, 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 blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those people who recognize that their spiritual bank account is so empty that they have nothing good to offer God on their own. We're all poor in spirit. Some people just are better at recognizing it. And that's the nature of our sin. You see, we're not just people who occasionally sin. We are sinners through and through. Our hearts are broken. Our hearts are distorted. We don't love the right things. We don't do the right things because sin has infected all of our hearts. We are poor in spirit. We are poor in heart. Our hearts are poor quality because they've been messed up by sin. They've been infected by sin. They need to be cleaned. We're poor in spirit. We are sinners through and through. So some, some people, a lot of people, think that the starting point of Christianity is just try to be better. Just clean your life up. Just get things in order. And according to Jesus, the starting point of Christianity is not try to do better, but instead the starting point is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. The starting point is to realize that you have nothing good to offer. Why? Why is that the starting point? Because Christianity is not about you. You're not the hero. Jesus is the hero. And it's only the people who are poor in spirit and recognizing their own spiritual poverty that are able to say that, that are able to say that Jesus is the hero, that we have no other hope in life and death but Jesus' blood and righteousness. The poor in spirit says, I am poor, but he is rich. And the one who is poor in spirit has the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And again, notice here, this is not a conditional statement. If you're poor in spirit, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's not saying that, that, you know, if you're humble enough, you can earn your way into God's good favor. No, no, no. That's the exact opposite of the point, friends. It's not you can muster it up enough and, and be humble enough and really look down on yourself enough that Jesus looks with you, looks on you with favor. That's the opposite of the point. The point is not how humble you are. The point is how gracious God is. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So when we see our poverty of spirit, when we see how broken and infected our hearts are, how do we respond? We respond with mourning. We don't excuse our sin. We hate it. We lament it. We mourn it. So think about when you go to a funeral, you mourn. Because someone that you love has died. And when you look at the sin inside your own heart, you mourn. Because there's so much deadness inside of you. The true disciple mourns sin. The true disciple hates sin. The true disciple does whatever it takes to get rid of sin. Because it's nasty. But this mourner is not left alone. The mourner is comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Forgiveness is available to any who cast themselves on the Lord Jesus. So you might feel today that you have no business being in church today. You feel like you have no business touching a Bible or hearing about God and his love for you. Surely God can't love people as messed up as I am, you might be thinking. I'm so broken. This guy doesn't know the half of what I've done. And I don't, but Jesus does. You are sinful. You are poor in spirit. You do have nothing good to offer. That's the point. And Jesus says, you're his. You're his. Jesus, Hear this invitation from Jesus. Don't take my word for it, from, for it. A few chapters later, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, come to me, all who get their life together and, and live the good life on their own. No, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So friends, if you're feeling today like you have no business being here, that's the point. It's God's grace, not our worthiness, not our worthiness. Jesus is gentle towards sinful people. And he calls us to be gentle as well. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
meekness. What is meekness? Meekness is true humility that's shown in gently serving others. It's often our own pride that keeps us from serving other people. Am I right? Often, we we would never say this out loud, but often when somebody asks us to help them, we think, I don't want to do that, or I've got better things to do. What is that? That's pride. That's pride that says that. But meekness says, I'm not too important. I can serve others. Meekness says, I'm not going to hold my life with a closed fist. I'm going to hold it with open hands and give it away. I'm not that important. I'm going to give what little I have away because because I have an inheritance. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this word used here in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 11 when he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Because Jesus, too, is a gentle, meek servant. He's kind and he loves you and he wants to serve you. The true disciple trusts Christ, not themselves. Christianity is not powerful because of the wisdom and power and righteousness of its constituents. Christianity is powerful because of the wisdom and power and righteousness of its Savior, of its King. We're not the true King. Jesus is the true King. And this Savior, infinite in power, did not use that power to his own advantage, but in meekness, He laid his own life down to save a people for himself, to forgive sinners. We are absolutely hopeless in our sin. We're poor in spirit. We we have no, no possibility to buy a bus ticket to heaven. We are poor in spirit. There's nothing in the bank account. You swipe your debit card, nothing happens. We have no hope in our sin, but Christ doesn't leave us there. He gives us hope. He gives us hope. And so, friends, in a city where almost everyone is jockeying for power and influence because of their own supposed greatness, they really believe they could help people and make a difference if they have power, Christ calls us to recognize our own smallness and foolishness. So, friends, you are not as great as you think you are. I'm not as great as I think I am. You could say that to me every day, and I I would be well served by it, friends, please. I would encourage you to do that. But some some of you have not recognized yet that you're poor in spirit. Some of you are operating under the delusion that you have something to offer God, and that God will accept you. You're good enough. You've got it figured out. No, that's not the case. You're poor in spirit. You have nothing good to offer. True disciples see themselves humbly. And so if you think that your way into heaven is your own goodness, you're not a true disciple. You're not a Christian. Your only hope is that Jesus Christ is the meek and gentle Savior who saves and forgives sinners. And Christians, this means that repentance is not a one-time thing for us, that you repent and you're in and then you're good. No, we need to continually mourn our sin. We need to continually strive after righteousness. 
We always need to see our poverty. We always need to repent. We always need to cling to Christ because he is the Savior, not you. Friends, let that weight fall off your shoulder. It's too heavy for you to carry. The true disciples see themselves humbly. And number two, the true disciples seek God and serve others. The true disciple does not live for what's most pleasurable for himself. He lives to seek God and serve others. So the world says, you want the good life? Make yourself comfortable. Serve yourself. Treat yourself. Christ says, you want the good life? Deny yourself to serve others. Verse 6, blessed, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The true disciple has this burning desire to be righteous, to be right with God, to be his friend, not his enemy, based on God's grace, to live for God's plan, not our own, to live for God's glory, not our own. The true disciple is filled with this desire to be righteous that could only be characterized as a a burning hunger. Maybe you've experienced that kind of hunger before. You forgot your lunch when you went to work one day or, or, or something like that, and, and you just go through the whole day, you feel your stomach rumbling all day, and you finally get home, and you grab that snack, and you eat it, and it's just like, ah. You finally get food, and it's so satisfying. And that's what the true disciple's life is like. The true disciple says, like, oh, I want to be righteous, and strives after it. And when we fight sin, it's so satisfying and rewarding. And again, I want you to remember, these are not conditional statements. Like, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, then your life will be better. It's describing the disciples' worldview, describing the organic picture of the disciples' life, that if you pursue righteousness, it will go well with you. God knows what he's doing when he gives commands. I use this illustration all the time. If you've heard it before, bear with me. But, but some people think that God's commands are like a straitjacket to keep you from having fun. And, and, you know, God's saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And God's just trying to rob you of all of your joy. God's commands are not a straitjacket to keep you from having fun. God's commands are signposts pointing you to where life is. They're saying, don't go that way. That's death. That's sin. That's not going to go well with you. Go this way. This is the way that I've designed. This is the way that's good for you. This is the way where the blessed life is, the good life is. Go that way. And friends, just notice here, who's the one that does the satisfying? They shall be satisfied. That's passive. The, the true disciple doesn't satisfy themselves like, ah, I've arrived now. I've, I've become righteous enough. No, God is the one who gives us righteousness. His grace is the one that empowers us to be righteous. God is the one who satisfies us. God is the one who supplies this righteousness that we're so hungry for. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful. I think that we tend to have a transactional view of mercy. We say things like mercy is not getting the punishment that we deserve. I know I've said things like that. And that's true, but it's not enough. Mercy is so much more than that. Mercy is to care for those who need help. Mercy gives food to the hungry. It gives hope to the hurting. 
It gives forgiveness to the guilty. That's what mercy is. And God shows this mercy to us. He commands us to show mercy here in verse 7, but only in the realm, the sphere of his own mercy. God shows this mercy to us. God provides for our every need according to his riches and kindness. God provides an eternal hope for us. We know that this world's not our home. We know that he will provide for us forever, that we'll be with him forever. And God provides forgiveness to us in our guilty, in our guilt. God shows mercy, and he invites us to show mercy as well, to experience his kindness and pass it out to others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We respond to God's mercy by showing mercy to others, food to the hungry, hope to the hurting, forgiveness to the guilty. There's so many things that we could say about showing mercy. And and, and I I think we'll just wait to get further into the Sermon on the Mount. All of these ideas that we see here in the Beatitudes, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to give in even more detail and, and stunning HD color later on in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you feel like we're just kind of coasting over things today, it's because we're going to dive deeper as we get further into the Sermon on the Mount. As we study the Sermon on the Mount, you can even think about, where was this in the Beatitudes? Where have I heard this before? Blessed are, the, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. When you hear Jesus teaching on forgiveness, you could remember that. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The true disciple is pure in heart. Pure in heart. This is not describing external conformity. It's describing an internal change that only God can bring about. It's not saying just do the right things. It's about loving the right things. It's not just about following the rules. It's about following Christ. So imagine if I went home today and I gave flowers to my wife and I said, I have to do this. Here's some flowers, whatever. Nobody cares about that. It doesn't matter if you do the right things, if you don't love the right things. Blessed are the pure in heart, the ones who love the right things, not just the ones who outwardly do the right things. It's not about following rules, it's about following Christ. Imagine if there was a Marine who always kept his uniform in perfect condition, and he always did everything right. He always saluted the right people. He always showed up on time. He, he did everything right. He's a perfect Marine if you look at him, but inside he hates the United States of America, and he's planning to overthrow the government and do something crazy. It doesn't matter if you follow other rules if you don't follow Christ. You're not living for the right kingdom. So following the rules... And going through all of the motions without a heart transformed by Christ is so worthless. Friends, so many people think that Christianity is just about following the rules. And rules aren't enough. Christ is after so much more than that. He's not after your external conformity. He's after your whole heart. He's calling you to know him, to make him the one single devotion, the driving passion of your life, to be pure in heart, to be singularly devoted to him and him alone. Blessed are the pure 
in heart. And again, this is not something that you can just do. You can't just say like, okay, I'm going to be pure now. I'm going to be singularly devoted to Christ. Because we don't love the right things. We don't follow the right king. We put ourselves on the throne more than we care to believe. We love ourselves and creature comforts more than we love Christ often. Christ has to do this. Christ can transform our hearts and Christ alone can do it. So again, I hope that you're, you're sitting under the weight of this and realizing I can't do any of this. I'm poor in spirit. Friends, that's where we want you to be. We want you to have a heart transformed by Christ because that's the only way you can live this kind of pure life. And this is why following Jesus is frequently compared to dying. Talk about a motivational speech. When Jesus' disciples gathered around and they were hearing that things were kind of not going well, like he was probably going to like die on a cross and stuff, and like, this is not what I signed up for, Jesus. And, and Jesus stands up and he gives a motivational speech. Yeah, we're all going to die. It's not, but that's the plan. Here's words in Matthew 16. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And when we say things like that, things like lay your life down for Jesus, that sounds grand and abstract and yeah, I'm going to die for Jesus, that's awesome. But it sounds pretty abstract in our culture where no one is going to kill us because we came to church this morning. But it's really just about following Christ and serving others no matter the personal cost. So, so, so many people will say like, yeah, I'm going to die for Jesus. And then when it comes to lay your life down and serve somebody else, like help somebody move or, or serve your spouse around the house, there's absolutely no dying to self. Self is up on a throne. You can't mess with him. He's the true king. It's a lie. I don't believe that anymore. And friends, again, Christ alone can bring this about. This is not a call to just be a more kind person because it doesn't matter how kind you are if you don't know God. So Christian, if you're not a Christian, again, you're sitting under the weight of this. I don't care how long you've called yourself a Christian or how many times you've been in this room. If you're realizing today that you're not a Christian, that you're not pure in heart, your response to this shouldn't just be like, all right, I'm going to try harder. Your response to this is to let go and experience God's true mercy in Christ so that you can show mercy to others. It doesn't matter how kind you are if you don't know God's kindness. And Christians, we have to know God. We have to prioritize private prayer, private Bible reading, because we can't be kind to people. We can't make disciples if we aren't ourselves disciples. And Christians do that. Love others. Show the same undeserved mercy to others that Christ has shown to you. This week, just be on the lookout for ways to show mercy, to help those who need help. Whether it's an encouraging word, a material provision, or to share the word of Christ with them. To share with them that they are poor in spirit, but that there is hope available to them. In Christ alone. The true disciple see 
themselves humbly. True disciples seek God and serve others. And number three, true disciples sacrifice themselves for peace. We respond to conflict in a countercultural, Christ-like way. So the world says the good life is always being liked and respected. Christ says the good life is to pursue peace, no matter the personal cost. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Don't you want to be a peaceful person? Conflict is often like a fire. It burns us up. It ravishes the people around. People get hurt in conflict. People get burned in a fire. And whenever we're facing a fire of a conflict, we have an opportunity to pour gas or to pour water. We have an opportunity to pour gas and and dig your heels into the ground and grit your teeth and say, I'm going to get my way because I'm the true king. Or we have an opportunity, uh, opportunity to pour water, to diffuse the conflict. In every conflict, whether at your workplace, at your home, with your roommates, you have an opportunity to escalate or to de-escalate with every word you say. And Christians are peacemakers. They choose to de-escalate. Sometimes that means not defending yourself when someone criticizes you. But instead, to, to, to take Jesus' instruction to look at the plank in your own eye and to hear the truth in what they're saying. Or if there's literally no truth, which might be the case, if there's literally no truth in the criticism, just let it go off of you. Just let it roll off your back. Because we're peacemakers. Sometimes that means not making a joke at someone else's expense. Even though it's really funny, it would make people like you a little bit more. We don't make it because we're peacemakers. We don't hurt other people. We build them up with our words, not tear them down. And sometimes that means not continuing an argument, even when you know you're in the right. It's about choosing to be wrong in the eyes of another person because it's not worth hurting someone else. It's not worth it. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, If possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. No matter the cost, Christians are to do anything and everything in our power to shut down conflict. And I I do want to give a caveat here of physical abuse, where if you are being physically harmed by someone, the way that you operate as a peacemaker is to remove yourself from that situation immediately and to seek help. Come talk to one of us here today if you're in that situation. You don't give that abuser an opportunity to keep sinning. You get yourself safe. You remove yourself from that situation and you seek help. You don't stay there. When we pursue peace in this kind of way, we are sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That means that that we're like God when we pursue peace, when we forgive, when we choose to de-escalate conflict, when we choose not to defend ourselves. Why is that the case? How has God been a peacemaker? 
Because when Christ came to the earth, he didn't defend himself. Even though the accusations that were flung against him were completely bogus. Christ didn't seek his own good. He, in fact, allowed himself to be killed to forgive the very people who were slaughtering him and falsely accusing him and slandering him and abandoning him and humiliating him and betraying him. Christ died for people who are poor in spirit. Christ died to be a peacemaker. He allowed his enemies to crush him in order to forgive their sins. He gave himself in order to make peace between God and man. And because Christ is perfect and has no sin, he has no shortcoming, he has no wrongdoing, he didn't stay dead at the cross. He victoriously rose from the dead because the sins that he was being punished for weren't his own. They were ours. All of our spiritual poverty was put on Christ at the cross. He died in our place. And at that, ha- at that moment, an exchange happened. He took our spiritual poverty and he gave us his infinite riches. He's a peacemaker. He's a peacemaker. And if you don't have peace with God today, Again, it doesn't matter how kind you are if you don't know God. And so, friends, don't sit here with indifference any longer. Come and be reconciled to God. Jesus continues, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We just prayed earlier in the service for the persecuted church in Afghanistan, people who will be killed because they were baptized. People who will lose their jobs because they opened the Bible. People who will go to church on a Sunday morning in secret and come home to find their house has been burned to the ground. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How stunning is that? And Jesus was speaking directly here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was speaking to 12 disciples, almost all of whom would face brutal deaths on his account because they wouldn't stop sharing his name. And oh, how how small and poor in spirit we are to not even open our mouths for fear of maybe our neighbor thinking we're a little weird. When Jesus says, instead, don't don't hide your light under a basket, but share his word, and you will be hated for it. And when you do that, you look forward to the future reward. Maybe some of you were really good at math in high school, and people made fun of you for it. They said you were a nerd, and they, they said that you, you, you would never have any friends, and you were ugly or whatever. You were a nerd. You're being hated and reviled and persecuted on math's account. And then you graduate college and you got way more scholarships than they did. And then you enter a lucrative career as an engineer. And they're like, we're going to Taco Bell. You have a better future reward. 
you have a better future reward. And friends, the true disciple has an even better reward to look forward to. Not just the great paying job, but Christ himself. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world could burn down your house. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Your neighbors might never talk to you again because you're that guy. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And as we saw last week and throughout the book of revelation the reward is christ himself so many people are so foolishly settling for this prosperity gospel that says you could have your best life now i don't want my best life now i want the kingdom of heaven i want blessed or blessed tomorrow i want to live with christ forever i don't want money i want christ the true disciple has this great reward to look forward to christ himself The true disciple trusts and follows Christ, follows him by enduring persecution and cultivating peace, laying down your life to pursue unity instead of approval. I'm going to ask the the music team to come back up now as we wrap up our time. Christians, stop loving conflict. In our rage-filled social media age, it's just so easy to hate people. That's foolish. That's not the way of Christ. Christ was hated by people, but he never hated anyone. Stop loving conflict. Pursue peace and unity instead. And again, some of you might be realizing today that you are not actually a Christian. That you've never come to Christ with your empty hands and said, I have nothing to offer and thrown yourself, entrusted yourself to his mercy and his grace. The good life that you're pursuing is not worth it. You might have all the treasures and riches of the world and approval of the world and comforts of the world now. I want to challenge you to live for something better. Christ himself, who died and rose again to bring you home. So don't let pride get in the way today. If you are realizing today that you're poor in spirit, then I want you to come during the last song, come back and talk to me or one of the other prayer counselors who will be in the back of the room ready to talk to you and pray with you and share Christ with you. We're not going to judge you because we've all been there. All that you're doing is realizing that you're part of the family, that we're all poor and broken and messed up and Christ is our only hope. We're in it together, friend. There's no judgment. So if you want the good life, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. The true people of the true king follow the king to the very end. And where does the king lead them? To a cross, to death. And after that cross comes a glorious resurrection when we will know God forever. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the treasure that it is. We thank you that even though we are poor in spirit, you have offered us life and riches and treasure, which is you alone. Oh God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see our smallness and your wonder. 
And I pray that as we continue to study the Sermon on the Mount over the next few months, that you would just continue to show us our need of you. That you alone can bring these things about in our life. And God, I pray that for those people here who are realizing that they are not at peace with you, that they haven't entrusted themselves to your Son, that they would come and seek prayer in the back of the room during the final song that nothing would stop them, and I pray that people would be raised to life in you today, that Christians would walk in repentance and humility and love. Oh God, we thank you so much that you are our only hope. All that we have is Christ. All that we have is Christ. You are our only hope. I pray that we would believe that today. It's for your name we pray. Amen.